What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today Sean is joined by Ali Ahmed Ali is a managing partner and co-founder of CoVenture, a firm that invests $30,000 of software into pre-seed tech startups before helping them raise their first round of financing. Before that, he did consulting for government, both international and domestic firms, and co-founded a startup aimed at making the news easier to read. Ali is a co-founder of The Pop Shop, a communal working space for Cornell University students based out of Ithaca, New York. Ali, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I am doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to know how a kid from California ends up going to Cornell. So I grew up playing baseball. Um, and for the longest time, I thought I was going to play, play Pac-10 baseball. Oh, I guess that's now Pac-12. Um, and then my I think junior year, I uh, got hurt. Um, and I still want to play Division One baseball. Uh, but I thought going to the East Coast might be a better opportunity because I'd be able to get into a school that I probably didn't otherwise have the grades to get into. And so I chose to play Cornell baseball. Um, and I didn't even really expect myself to travel up to Ithaca to go visit a college. Um, but sort of on a whim, I did. And I was enchanted by, you know, by A, the campus. It was just unbelievable. Uh, two, how big the school was. So of all the Ivy League schools, Cornell was the biggest. And my parents had gone to UCLA. I'd grown up near UCLA. And so I'd sort of just sort of seen that type of campus before. And Cornell looked like what a college should look like. Um, and then I, you know, the, the night I visited the baseball team, played the softball team in charades, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> uh, and so I chose to go to court. Oh, and they had uh, chocolate milk on tap. Nothing um, wrong with that. In the, in the cafeteria. And so that was a major, major uh, reason. And so I, I went to Cornell. Um, I started working while I was in college, and then I just got addicted to New York City. So I was, when I was in college, I was in New York uh, working on a startup. Um, so I'd go to the office in New York go to a game or something or practice, go back up to Ithaca, um, take a test, go back down to New York. Um, and, uh, and you know, I just got kind of hooked on the city. Oh, I got you. So, I mean, doing some work while you're at Cornell, what was next steps when you, when you graduate, what does that look like? Well, so I started, um, my first startup my freshman year. So it was actually, I mean, the first steps after graduating were really just continuing to do what I was doing in college. So, because I had done a startup my freshman year and then I was doing consulting um, and the way I'd really started my consulting practice was I had shown up to a bunch of conferences I was asked to speak at I told everyone I was a consultant and every time they asked me to do something I said yep I'm an expert at that I could definitely do it um, and then I'd hire people who actually did know what they were doing and I'd subcontract out the work um, and then after a while I wanted to start angel investing and so about my the beginning of my senior year in college um, we sort of came up with the idea of co-venture and started uh, investing out of our own pockets and then raised a little bit of capital from other people. And so we started managing a tiny, tiny amount of capital from sort of our friends, uh, my spring semester, senior year. I can't wait to jump into co-venture. I have to know, what were you like in high school? I mean, some of these ideas are pretty outside the box here, especially just having the audacity to contract out this work and say yes to everything. What was I like in high school? Um, I, I was pretty like, a, a mix between baseball nerd and emo. Really? So, um, yeah. So I have the worst taste of music in the world, <laughs> but I used to go to Warp Tour twice a year. Um, uh, I still listen to Cute Is What We Aim For, Panic at the Disco, Blink-182, uh, like, at it for whatever. And so it was sort of this combination of hanging out with all the kids who like, like, liked punk alternative pop and uh, the kids who played baseball. And actually, what was funny is like you sort of watch these movies as the kids who are really good at these different sports, and you just assume all of them are like really cool at school and like have a lot of friends, et cetera. But most of the kids who are really good at baseball uh, were just completely like socially inept. And the reason they were so good at baseball is because they didn't have any friends, so all they would do is just play baseball. And like I remember, in, like most kids were having a party Friday night, and I would go to the batting cage uh, and. I would turn my car lights on, the headlights on, so I could light up the batting cage at midnight and like just hit like off a tee until from midnight till 2 a.m. Because like that was just, I don't know, I just didn't have anything better to do. And so, uh, I don't know. Um, what was it like in high school? Probably similar to what I am now. Uh, didn't, I, I wasn't like a great student, um, but not in like a, I didn't like school sort of way. I just, I just wasn't, I just focused on baseball and 
uh, when I got to college, I ended up just being a better student than I was in high school because I realized it was more important. Can you give a quick rundown on what CoVenture is? I know you were hitting on that, and we'll dive more into that in a second, but just for the listeners who are unfamiliar. Yeah, so um, at CoVenture, we identify new asset classes built on the back of technology. So, you know, cryptocurrencies are a great example of that, where, you know, Bitcoin is this uh, token that you can buy, sell, and trade and use to either store value or buy things and, and sort of uh, uh, execute payments without trusting a central party. And it's this thing of value built on the back of this technology called the blockchain. Uh, so that's an example of a new asset class built on the back of a technology. Uh, another uh, example is like we do this farm lending business where we lend against uh, perishable produce. Um, and we, you know, built technology or, or invested in a company that built technology to track produce in real time so that we could track it, finance it, secure against it, um, and create this sort of interesting yield product uh, that had never really existed before. Um, and then we do venture capital as well. So we have a venture capital fund, and in that fund, we build software for the companies we invest in. And the thesis is not every CEO in the world is going to be a software engineer. So we don't really know why the whole model of venture capital is pool together $50 million and give a million dollars at a time to a bunch of kids who can code, hoping they might build a company. Um, instead, what we wanted to do is go find really, really great entrepreneurs, regardless of whether or not they were software engineers, um, but who knew their space really well. And then if they couldn't build the software, we'd help them do it. And we'd also invest some capital alongside with it. How'd you guys come up with the idea? Uh, you know, I think that part of it, I'm trying, I'm trying to think like, you know, everyone has like all the romantic stories of how they came out with something. And, and usually they sound really good on marketing decks. I'm trying to think <laughs> of like the version that's closest to the truth. Um, you know, I think the reality is I was trying to go around and invest $20,000 at a time into companies and realized no one really needed $20,000 except for the people who were like were most desperate. Because if you were a really good startup, first round capital is going to give you a million bucks and all the other angels were sort of blessed to be in the round. Um, and, but, but a group that was completely underserved were these like people who were in their early to mid 30s or even like early to mid 40s who were senior executives at companies or had been in the space for a long time or knew a lot of their customers and felt like they were the type of people who really should be the CEOs of these new companies, but they weren't getting funded because they like couldn't code. And, you know, like a lot of these companies weren't even technology companies. They were just tech enabled. And I think a lot of people conflate computer science and coding. Um, and it's just not true. And so like, if you're really building a new technology and like the core competency of the company's, you know, computer science, then yeah, you should be a software engineer before starting the company or a computer scientist. But if you're just building a web application and applying like just basic web apps to a new industry, you probably don't need to be an engineer to start that company. And we realized that like we wanted to fund them. We felt uncomfortable funding them unless we knew they were actually going to build the product. And so we just decided to help them build the product. I got you. When you're looking for these founders, I mean, what are you really looking for in them? There's a number of different things. So like, I guess the way I would think about it is it's like you probably remember who your smartest friend from high school is. So you asked me about what I was like in high school. So in high school, the smartest person I knew was this girl named Christina Sue. Um, and Christina Sue, like I used to use Christina Sue's pencil to take tests. And I used to call it the elder pencil, like the elder one from Harry Potter. So I just assumed if I used her pencil, then like I would do a lot better. Um, and like if Christina Sue ever starts a company, I'm going to fund the shit out of that company. because She's like a genius. And so we're looking for that person who's the smartest person in their friend group. So if you were to think about all the people you know from your early childhood to who you are now, like you have to really ask yourself, am I the, the smartest, most successful person they know? Am I the person that everything I do or everything they've ever seen me do has somehow sort of worked out? And then the other thing is you probably have like this sort of set of friends that you have in, in, your, in your sort of friend group or your world or your life that they're really amazing, smart people. But for whatever reason, they just haven't found the thing they like yet. So like they probably went to a college and like their first semester didn't really like the college to transferred and they didn't really like their major. So they switched it three times and they don't like they didn't like their first job. And they're like thinking about moving cities because they don't really like this city. And there's people who don't like stuff. And then there's the other group that they always seem to get lucky. They like love the college. They got into their favorite fraternity or sorority or like they got into their favorite club and they like randomly became president. And like there's I think that a lot of that luck is really self-created. Um and they're also the people who are just interested in stuff. So I think that, you know, many of us spend so much of our time trying to be interesting that we forget to be interested. And the people who spend a lot of their time being interested end up just accidentally becoming interesting over time because they're just gathering so much random information. And those are the people who just end up getting lucky because they just like everything. Um, and, and, you know, the other part is 
um, people who surround themselves with amazing friend groups. So, you know, there's like, of course, like the cliche of that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. But if you really think hard about who those five people are, you know, it could be your roommate, it could be your, this, that one random person who's in all your classes and you sit next to each other, not because you like each other that much, but because you just know each other and they have all the same courses you do, or it's your parents or your siblings or whomever. Um, it's the people who are really, really, really careful about choosing who those people are. Um, because A, they're probably going to be able to get networked into other stuff because those people are really phenomenal. And B, they're just sort of lifted to this different level of expectation by their friends um, because, you know, all their friends are doing awesome. So they have to, too, to keep up. And I think that ends up being this like great pressure. Um, so, so those are some of the things about the person that we're trying to back. And when you mentioned most networked person, is there someone that comes to front of mind for you? Yeah, Morgan Beller. Uh, so Morgan was like my best friend in college. And I pretend that I, I tell people that I know everybody because I know Morgan and Morgan is everybody. <laughs> um, and so Morgan works at Facebook now. Before that, she was at Medium. Before that, she was at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, Andreessen hired her after her third year at Cornell. So she graduated from Cornell after three years instead of four because like, why not? Um, and uh, and like Andreessen was like, hey, you, that would be really cool if like, you work for us. And she's like, yeah, I think it'd be cool too. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but yeah, she's incredible. Um, I think that anyone who meets Morgan for 15 minutes, like is absolutely in love with her. And, uh, you know, you asked me who the most network person I know is that's it. Gotcha. You mentioned self-created luck as well. How lucky do you think you are? On the pursuit of luck. <laughs> on, on, the, on the pursuit of further luck. <laughs> oh, I love that approach. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about these founders now and, and what's your overall investment philosophy? Overall investment philosophy. Yep. Um, so like, I don't know, you have four hours. Um, so <laughs> maybe the, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple bullets on the overall, uh, investment philosophy. The first is we look for stuff where we know why we have like this competitive edge. Um, and we know why we're the first ones looking at it or because we're looking at it, we're going to have some proprietary way of investing. And often that's because we're investing in something that, you know, a lot of people when they're talking about investing are talking about buy low, sell high, and buy something that's cheaper than it really is, or is really worth, or something that's mispriced. And I think the, the difference that we would say is we look for stuff that's unpriced. So stuff that people have never tried to invest in before in their lives, and are suddenly trying to invest in now because it's a new thing. Um, examples that I've given in the past, and like I, I'm out of new ideas, so I'm just going to repeat a couple of them are, one, it's like Instagram accounts. Nobody buys Instagram accounts. Yet you probably follow like at fuck Jerry, at the Tinder blog, at fat Jewish, like all these different funny ones. And they probably have some terminal value. Like they probably are generating cash flow. Half the posts that they post, I'm sure, are native advertising in them. Like I want to buy some of those. Partly because I think I can make money and partly because I'd love to walk into a drinks event and like someone asks me what my Instagram handle is and I get to say fuck Jerry. But, you know, like I think that there's like a bunch of things like that in the world that you could buy um, and no one knows how to price them. So if you're the first one to price it, you could probably do it in something that's fairly attractive. Cool. So we were just talking about uh, business rollups, kind of acquiring Instagram accounts, things like that. What company do you think is going to be the first to crack this? I don't know. Maybe it's going to be us. You know, I, th I think the, the problem is the biggest investment firms like can't, right? Because what are they going to do? They're going to go tell their LPs they're going to do something they've never heard of. So like if you're a really big firm, uh, you just have so much to lose that you can't really try stuff that's new and different. Or if you're going to, you have to do it in something like called a tactical ops fund or like something totally off the cuff, or you have to use your GP capital to do it. So I think it takes a firm that sort of has this like tech DNA to go like find these digital assets or go find things that like are hard to underwrite and say, well, because we sort of have this venture capital fund, we can underwrite the like terminal value of this stuff. And we can underwrite the Instagram platform and everything else. So I think it's probably going to be a smaller firm. It's probably going to be one that's a little bit fast moving and maybe it'll be us. Um, that'd be really cool. How would you go about uh, determining terminal value on something like Instagram accounts? Well, so you, you determine terminal value in a bunch of different ways. So you could say like, okay, here's your cash flows, right? So like, I know that every single time I post an image and I get, you know, a, a million followers and 200,000 of them engaged and I'm going to price some amount. And so let's imagine like every time I post a, a, a photo that's funny, but that has a native ad in it, um, it costs two, you know, I, I make $2,000. And I can do that twice a day. So I make $4,000 a day and there's 365 days of the year, but I might take some vacation. So now I'm making $1.2 million. And by the way, I just have to pay myself a salary because it's really just me brokering this stuff to people and maybe I have an assistant. So my total overhead is $300,000. So I'm cash flowing 9%. So 
So then what would you say like the value of that thing is worth? Well, I'd say, okay, so Instagram, you know, it's a new asset and it's risky because like, what if people don't think you're funny anymore and you always have to like, and, or what if like people stop paying you advertising revenue? And so you'd say, okay, so I need like a 20% return for this to be worth buying it. And if you said, okay, so my cost of capital is 20%. So why did I say it was 20%? Well, because I know if I buy real estate, I can probably get 12 to 13%. And like everyone knows what real estate is. And there's a lot of money in the space. And it's a little bit less risky than Instagram. So, okay. So I have to make more than I'm going to make on um, real estate. And, you know, if, if at, at one day I can decide I can make 20% on real estate, then I'll need 30% return on capital for Instagram. So, but okay. So back to the example, I say, I decide, you know what? I need to make a 20% return on my money. Um, for this investment to be worth it. And so what I do is I say, okay, well, I'm cash flowing $900,000 a year. So I'm going to take $900,000 divided by 20%. And so you'd say, okay, like 900 divided by 0.2 is 4.5 million. Okay. So I would ascribe a $4.5 million price tag to the business, assuming that like, I don't think there's going to be more growth. Cool. No, I just so want to hear your, how yeah, no, I just want to hear your thought process on that. I'm also curious. I mean, you're talking all these different investments, which one over the last six to 12 months just has you most excited right now? All of them. I'm excited about all the investments equally. <laughs> They're all going to be awesome. They're all going to be unicorns or something of the same, you know, the, the analog of a unicorn in each other. Asset all class. right, let's not go specific companies here. Let's talk about just a general space, which has had you peaked interest recently. Um, something new that, that's kind of come on the scene. I think the bail bond industry should totally change. I think the bail bond industry is totally messed up. So basically what happens is you get arrested um, average bail is like $25,000. And so let's imagine like you and I are best friends, Sean, like I do something stupid. And so I call you and I say, Hey, Sean, like, can you bail me out of jail? And you're like, sure. How much is bail? I said, $25,000. And you're like, God, Ali, I like you, but not that much. <laughs> so you go to a bail bondsman and he says, you know what? You have to give me 10% of the money. So that's 2,500 bucks. And all, and if you give me $2,500, I will put all the bail for you. You say done. I like Ali enough that I'll pay 2,500 bucks to the bail bondsman. The bail bondsman, as long as I show up to court later, gets all his money back. So it ends up being like a 300% APR loan. And by the way, like he, the bail bondsman might have taken out a lien against your home. And you would have said, that's fine, because I know all these are actually going to show up to court. Um, that's a 300% first lien secured loan uh, that's totally abusive. Or if you don't put up bail, you basically have me sitting in jail. I lose my job because my employer is like, why didn't Ali show up for 30 days? Um, I lose my apartment because I couldn't make rent because it's hard to pay your bills while you're in jail. Um, and then I show up to court and I've just been in jail for 30 days. And so the jury's looking at me and they, I look like a criminal. Um, and so I'm more likely to get prosecuted. Uh, and so, you know, I just think it's this socially unjust thing. I think it's a totally messed up financial product. I think that there's a way to uh, finance it in a more responsible way. Where does this idea generation come from across different industries? Is this just pattern recognition for you? It's a lot of dropping acid. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we just kidding. had Stephen Kotler um, on who's talking about... Uh, oh, jeez. Okay, S Steve, Steve Jobs like says doing acid is a good idea. Now everyone wants to do it. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah. And then now there's like microdosing. Anyway, um, so I, I don't know. I think it's, um, it's probably being naive. Like it's probably just not knowing how things are supposed to be done. So you sort of look at it with a blank canvas and like look at a thing and say, oh, okay, that looks stupid. Like, if it started from scratch, how would you have done it? Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's easy. Like, I, I think it's really good to just sort of back up and say, okay, so if this hadn't even started yet, like instead of trying to modify this thing, what if I was going to do it all over again? How would it end up now that we know everything about it? I love how you hit on being naive there. Do you think you've been naive across your entire career? I'm just thinking about when you were still at Cornell uh, and you're contracting out the work. I mean, it's almost like you have no fear of failure. No, absolutely. I, I wake up every day and worry professionally. You know, I grew up with a Jewish mother and she's like a huge warrior and I, I inherited it. Um, so no, I mean, I think our job is to professionally be concerned. I think that it's sort of, sort of this fine line of confidence versus being completely uh, wary. You know, I think that it's, you know, go, going into an investment and being naive is not okay. Being naive enough to think, wow, that's interesting. Let me scratch the surface enough where I actually am no longer naive. And then I become a, in, like, a serious expert, you know, I think that you don't deploy capital until you're an expert, but you can start exploring an idea when you're naive. Um, I think it's, I think you have to be incredibly, incredibly serious and conscious of the fact that other people have given us capital 
and they trust their capital with us. And us going around running a bunch of experiments with their money is not an okay thing. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. What's your idea exploration like? I mean, do you just dive all in? I, I want to know when you, when you think of a new idea or come across something that interests you, what does that look like? What are you consuming? How are you learning more about this? I start talking to a lot of people about it. So like the, the Instagram and Airbnb, like the Instagram thing, like I will probably be convinced out of it at some point. But like every time I go onto a pod podcast or an interview or I talk to a friend or I get coffee with someone, I say, hey, have you ever thought about buying Airbnb or Instagram accounts? And um, and then eventually 95 people will give me like, you know, 80 different pieces of feedback. And, I'll, you know, I go to like the five people I surround myself with and I ask them what they think of it. And so a lot of it's just talking to a lot of people about it, something, getting all the feedback. And then once they've given you the feedback you know, four of them will say, Hey, well, I know a person who actually has a really famous uh, Instagram account. So you should go talk to them. And I try to, you know, I say, Hey, can I use my own money to try to buy your account before using other people's money? And, and they'll probably say no. And I'll say, why not? <laughs> you know, so it's sort of this, you go down this like rabbit hole of like sort of trying a bunch of stuff until you like probably don't end up where you thought you were going to end up, but maybe somewhere in the, in the field. I mean, I have no idea how familiar you are with the podcasting space, but would just love to get your brain dump thoughts on on how you would disrupt it. Uh, I have no freaking idea. Um, uh, I, I don't know much about the podcasting space in terms of disrupting it. Like, I know how I try to create a popular podcast, which is like I make my first 20 interviews, interviews with like 20 people who have big Twitter followings. So they all tweet out that they were on this podcast and then all of a sudden, like I'd have my own following and then like you get like the sort of loop, the viral loop in terms of uh, disrupting the podcast space though. I don't know. It's, um, there's a company called station head, uh, station head sort of doing this for radio and maybe there's an analog for podcasting, which is what they do is they allow everyone to have their own radio station and you can kind of subscribe. And what they do is they'll like, they'll say, look for an hour today, I'm going to DJ actively and talk and, and sort of do whatever the hell someone does while they're hosting a radio show. And the next 23 hours they are going to play like a playlist that they've preset. So maybe you can distribute who the hosts are of podcasting and every single one of my friends will have their own podcast and it'll just turn out that like, there's just a lower bandwidth way to have a podcast. Okay. So now my thinking is evolving. I also think there should be micro podcasts. So like, why is it that almost every single podcast we listen to is an hour? Like, why aren't there three minute podcasts? So I would try to create the vine of podcasts, I guess, or the sort of Instagram story of podcasts that are lower barrier to entry to record and lower barrier to entry to listen to. So that you could sort of say, okay, I want like a three minute, five minute clip. This is why I asked the question. I love, I love hearing how you articulate certain things and, and dive into them. And now I want to jump into something I know you know a lot about. We got to talk a little bit about crypto. Can you give both the bear and bullish sides on your thoughts? Yeah, so um, I'll give the bull case first and I'll give the bear case. The bull, so, so Bitcoin is like the first cryptocurrency or crypto asset or crypto token or whatever the hell you want to call it. And it got started like right around the financial crisis where everyone said, oh, wait, like I used to trade with Lehman Brothers. 
Lehman Brothers was holding my money. Lehman Brothers went out of business, and now I feel like I can't trust banks anymore. And so this guy or anonymous group or some anonymous entity that goes by Satoshi Nakamoto said, I'm going to create the blockchain. And the great innovation of the blockchain is that you can make payments without having to trust any central party. And they will be payments made with something that's not a fiat currency or a currency controlled by the government. So now I can make a payment to you without Bank of America or Chase or something like that saying, hey, yes, that was valid. That's like pretty useful in the U.S. It's far, far more useful in countries that are not the U.S., where the banks in those countries are less well-regulated or less well-known. If you think about like why, you know, you know, banks are these crazy institutions. They are usually in fancy buildings because back in the day, the way that you would trust a bank to hold your money is that they had a nice building. And so you assume they must be a big company. So if you like walk around New York City and you see all these CVSs and these old bank buildings that like look really nice, the reason they look nice is because they had to prove that they had enough money where they could like buy a building that nice and so that you would trust them to give you like their money. So trust has been a huge, huge thing in the, um, in the financial world forever. I think a lot of people lost trust in the banks. Um, and so having a technology to make those payments without trust was huge. What ended up happening, though, is everyone said, you know what? A currency is like a, a, a non-fiat currency is just never going to be like okayed by a government. And the reason is, like, let's think about why currency exists. So people said, okay, you know what? Um, like, or, or people think that the reason currency exists is because, you know, the barter system sucks. You know, let's say I have a wagon and I'm hungry and I got to find someone who has food who needs a wagon. So I like end up running around all day, like trying to make that trade. How much better would it be if we had U.S. dollars and we used currency to as a medium of exchange? But that's not really how currency got founded. What really the reason currency became a thing was because we used to have these like monarchies and these monarchies monarchies said, look, I'm doing all this stuff for the people. I'm giving them protection. I'm giving them housing. I'm giving them like these gardens and these walls, you know, and all sorts of stuff. So I'm creating a service, but no one's paying me for it. So I'm going to create a tool or a thing that they can pay back their social obligation or pay back their debt to me with. So our taxes are just us paying our debt to the government for having done all this stuff to us all year. You know, so we say, look, government, you provide me a freeway. You provided me with education. You provided me with an army. At the end of this year, I'll pay you back with a tax. Um, in the form of the U.S. dollar. And what ended up happening is these knight, or these kings would go to their knights and they'd say, hey, everybody, at the end of the year, you're going to owe me taxes with, let's call it U.S. dollars. But the only people who have U.S. dollars are the knights. So you have to go give shit to the knights such that they're motivated to give you these dollars. So now everyone wanted to be a knight. So then all of a sudden the king could hire knights because he could give them money and that money would then get them stuff, and that stuff would then make them rich. And so fiat currency is this incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. And by the way, we don't have knights anymore, but we have post office workers, <laughs> right? So, so no government would ever go away from fiat currency. And if you look at how um, the U.S. is tr- like regulating Bitcoin, they're acting like it's a commodity. Um, so it'll be a capital gain every single time you and I do something. And the accounting entry, entry of an, a capital gain would make no sense for us to go to the coffee shop and spend $2 of Bitcoin because you're going to have to take a capital gain tax and get like a K1 for it. So that'd be like a pain in the ass. And by the way, they do the same thing with gold and they're going to regulate it at the state level and it's just going to be too complicated. But the bull case is really that even though it's not going to be a currency, Bitcoin will still be a store value. And if you thought about what makes something a store value uh, you know, or, or something a good store value, you'd go down this sort of long list. And at the top of the list, you'd put volatility. And Bitcoin sucks at volatility. I don't want to put half of my wealth in something where I think it could crash or go up or crash or go up. But by the way, gold also used to be very volatile. And gold today is like, the, you know, a lot of people think it's the best store of value. The second thing is portability. And portability is huge. What I mean by portability is like, let's imagine you're a Syrian refugee and you want to leave your country. Walking around with a bag full of gold is probably a lot harder than bringing your Bitcoin from one country to the next. And like as a guy named Ali Hamid, I've never tried crossing the border with $10,000 of gold in my pocket before. But like I can't imagine like that would end up leading to like a super positive experience. Um, and so, you know, and then acceptability would be the next one. And so like if you and I were to go get lunch at a restaurant, I'm pretty sure our, the restaurants we would go to are going to accept Bitcoin before they're going to accept gold. 
And so if you keep going down this list of what makes something a good store value, you end up realizing that Bitcoin actually might be a better store value than gold is. And gold has a market cap of $7 trillion. And so there's like probably room for Bitcoin to grow. The other thing is people look at the market cap of gold of, of Bitcoin and they say, oh, it's like $300 billion. That also assumes that none, no Bitcoin's been lost. So I don't know what percent of Bitcoin's been lost because people send it to the wrong public key or they forgot their private key or whatever. But I bet you it's some significant amount. So I bet you the market cap of Bitcoin is a lot smaller than it's printed. Um, the bear case is one, you know, the fiat currency thing. Like, I don't think it'll ever be a currency. And the other is, you know, everyone said that the blockchain is going to be this big disintermediary of the banking system, and we're not going to have to trust central parties. But if you or I were to name the most famous Bitcoin company, uh, we'd name Coinbase. And Coinbase is like an intermediary trusted central party that charges high fees. Um, and so, you know, that's my really long monologue on crypto. No, I mean, you make, you make great cases on both sides of the argument there. So, I mean, what do you see happening in the next one year and then three to five years? So I have no idea what's going to happen in the next year. I think I know what's going to happen in the next three to five years. I think that over the next three to five years, a lot of people are going to say, I would like to invest in this asset class, but there's not the infrastructure I need to do so. And so people are going to build infrastructure to allow people to responsibly invest. Once that infrastructure is built, you know, it's crazy that such a bubble was created on the back of retail-only investors. There aren't pension funds, there aren't endowments, there aren't major family offices investing in Bitcoin. Yet it's still massively valuable. How nuts is it going to be when the infrastructure to allow for those people to invest or those institutions to invest is there? And that's custodial services, it's prime brokerages, it's all the different things that have to come in. It's, it's regulation that you don't think is going to change really quickly. It's investable funds managed by professional fund managers. It's all those different things. And once those different things occur, then you're going to see this huge net inflow of cash into the space. And I think you'll see appreciation of the asset class from there. Oh, gotcha. No, I love hearing these thoughts around this. I want to get more into Ali right now. So how do you structure your day? Well, I think about talking to you in the morning. I brush my teeth in case we meet in person. You know, like I, uh, no, um, I, I try to wake up fairly early because I've found that I don't do a lot of work between nine to five because most of the day is spent in meetings. Um, and so I, I probably get into the office, let's call it around seven, seven, seven thirty. I do email till about nine or eight. You know, we have a bunch of investors now in Europe. So often I'll do a call at 8am because that's sort of afternoon their time. Um, and then I try to spend probably a third of my day with our team, a third of my day looking at new investments and a third of the day talking to our existing investors and make sure they feel like they know what's happening at the firm. Um, and then at night, I'll start doing calls with people on the West Coast because it'll still be after their time. And then I'll probably do a drinks or dinner event with either a portfolio founder, a company we're thinking about investing in, or an existing LP, or a potentially new investor. And then I go home and uh, do more email. So when you're at the office, you're talking about all these different meetings you have. Do you do anything to control your environment there? Uh, so, you know, in terms of the meetings, I think that you just have to be like effective with them. So every meeting starts with an agenda. There's got to be an action item by the end of the meeting. You try to do the action item as quickly as possible or make sure that everyone knows, you know, make sure that no one leaves the meeting not knowing if they're the ones specifically supposed to go do something. Um, we used to have this rule where if you showed up to a meeting and there wasn't an agenda, we just canceled the meeting. Um, and if you showed up more than, you know, a couple of times without an agenda, we just asked you to not come to meetings anymore and, and maybe just, you know, get another job. And so... Uh, I guess it's just about being really, really careful with your time. The other thing, though, that I've found is it's really easy to get trapped in the cycle of taking meetings that you're requested to take, and you spend all your time reacting to stuff that you don't play offense. And so I don't spend enough of my time deciding, I want to go meet X, Y, and Z person. I'm going to go find a way to get to them. Um, instead, I end up spending a lot of my time taking meetings with people who requested to do the meeting, um, which means that I'm not controlling sort of the destiny of my day. And I think that's something that sort of started to change and adjust, but it was sort of a, a recent learning. I got you. Yeah, no, that's something I, I would have thought differently of you. I, I thought you would really protect your time because, I mean, you're someone who seems to be so creative. So how do you open up that creative side? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, part, part of the reason I live in New York as opposed to the Bay Area is it's an incredibly diverse community. And if you were to ask me who my best friends were, most of them don't work in tech. And so I think it's sort of trying to have this cross-disciplinary sort of expertise. 
um, entrepreneurship generally is a cross-disciplinary exercise. So, you know, usually it's like, I know a lot about A and I also know a lot about B, but most people who know about A don't know about B. So I'm going to find like a way to apply the stuff from A to B and make something new. And so probably it's sort of this really, really diverse group of people who live in New York that, you know, I try to spend time with. Um, it's the people at CoVenture have really crossed this point of expertise. So, you know, this, this idea that CoVenture keeps coming up with creative ideas because I'm a creative is like totally horseshit. CoVenture <laughs> as a team is like coming up with these creative ideas. And sometimes I just get to be the one on the podcast talking about them. Um, well, I mean, do you guys do anything as a group then to spark creativity? No, I, we just try to not be assholes to each other and sort of encourage each other's opinions. Um, and we have a group, like we have a lending team and we have a crypto team and we have a venture team. And often the lending team will look at venture and say, wow, I think, I can't believe you're doing it this way. We do it another way and it's much better. And the venture team goes, oh, of course. And then it happens the other way around. And then the crypto team says something and like everyone looks at them weird because it's fucking crypto. <laughs> and, you know, and, but then they're like, oh, maybe that was a good idea. Um, so it's probably a little bit of that cross-disciplinary thing. Um, but, but, you know, and it, it generally we're just always, you know, uh, trying to encourage learning different stuff, not more of the same. So it's really, really, really hard to know more about entrepreneurship than all the other entrepreneurship people. It's really, really easy to be sound smart by knowing something different. So if I know like 20% of what I should know about biomedical engineering and I go to an entrepreneurship meetup, I will be the world's leading expert according to them in biomedical engineering. So knowing something different often makes you sound really, really smart in a group of people who all think the same. And so we are constantly trying on this, on this pursuit of trying to create these cross-disciplinary expertise. I mean, one of my big takeaways from our conversation right now is just the different conversations that you're having and how much you're growing and learning from that. And I want to talk a little bit more about growing and, and how stress plays in that. I mean, how do you deal with stress? How do you implement stress to help yourself grow and become smarter? So I think stress is not as negative a thing as everyone says it is. Stress is a byproduct of wanting something really badly and being afraid of not getting it. Um, right. Like if you didn't want something, you wouldn't be stressed because you wouldn't be afraid that it might not happen. How blessed are you to be able to have the capacity for stress? Now, sometimes stress becomes inhibiting. Um, in that event, uh, you know, there, you just have to decide what stress level you're comfortable with and how much risk you're willing to take where you, you don't want to like deal with day to day, like, Oh my God, there's a fire. Um, and so I think part of it is, uh, you know, not procrastinating. So I think a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll put something off because they don't want to deal with it because they're stressed out about it. And that creates more stress and they get trapped by stress. And so I think it's like, I think it's just not avoiding stress. It's just leveraging stress as a tool, as opposed to being a victim of stress. Hmm, that's an interesting take on that. Have you always been like that? embracing stress I, I, essentially I, I did a lot of percocet in middle school so i was not very stressed during that time <laughs> um uh I'm, nah i'm half kidding um the uh no i, I yeah I, I think i've probably spent most of my life being fairly stressed and like I, I don't know if it's because i'm wired that way or because like you know my, my parents raised me to be like a generally anxious person um you know i think they were great parents so i don't think that was the case um so yeah probably i've just always been always been this way. No, I got you. What's taking up most of your mind space right now? Ooh. You know, I think that it's, it's really easy to spend so much time focused on the urgent as opposed to the important. Oh, I love um, that. And, and I probably spend too much of my time focused on urgent things, like things that have a deadline by the end of today or things that have been in my inbox for a while that I feel badly that I haven't responded to. Um, but it's probably, uh, yeah, right now it's probably like the, the deal that I'm negotiating or, you know, it's, a lot of it is sort of the amount of times I haven't responded to an email because I haven't decided yet. And while I'm not actively like blocking out a period of my, like an hour to say like, oh, I have to think about how to negotiate this thing. I'm sort of thinking about it in all the in-between space. So I think there's, you know, I think that the way you frame that question is a really positive way, which is like you ask more about mind share as opposed to time. And I think my, like, the percentage of my mind share on something is often different than my percentage of my time spent on something. And so uh, unfortunately for now, I still spend a lot of my time on the urgent as, you know, and sort of the current deals and motion. Um, and hopefully, you know, every once in a while I get to be on an airplane where I don't have internet access. And that's when sort of a lot of the brainstorming happens. Do you happen to schedule time like that specifically? Maybe it's on the weekend, just walks or, or scheduling flights where you're going to shut down everything? No, uh, not really. Um, I mean, I was in Japan last week and the, the flights of Japan had like no internet. So that was sort of forced opportunity to brainstorm. Um, so, so what did you do during that flight when you're talking about brainstorming? Do you just sit there in silence? 
No, I mean, I often like do something low pressure, like read. So we've gotten this, I've started doing this new thing where every time we hire somebody, I read their favorite book. I find that it's important because you often find that the protagonist of someone's favorite book is either someone they empathize with or aspire to be like. And so I like find it's like a cool way to get to know somebody. Um, but by doing something really low bandwidth, like reading a book, which is enjoyable, you often like read something in the book that inspires a thought or something like that. Um, and then it just leads to the, and then you're like, okay, then you write thought down and then it leads you to all these other things. I used to blog more than I do now. I need to get back into it. Yeah, I'm kind of pissed you're not blogging as much anymore. <laughs> yeah, but like writing, I found it was like nice to like write out a thought because then you end up like, I, I always write the first sentence of any blog last, which is like, because I don't really know where the blog is going when I start it. And then I get the top of my fuck, this is what I'm about to say. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any ideas that everyone else would think is crazy? Uh, probably. Give me a second. I don't know if like I don't know if they're cr- like people would think I'm crazy for it, but I don't I don't hear people say it a lot. So the first one is, um, you know, I and, and I've said this elsewhere, but um, I really do believe the two-hour movie is completely dead. I don't want I don't know why people watch them anymore, and I think that my kids will always watch a two-hour movie in classrooms and be like, "Dad, why did you like watch two-hour movies? They seem horrible." And they'll think of two-hour movies like we think of like Shakespeare sonnets, where we're like. You know, I get that Macbeth was supposed to be great, but I'm really not sure what the big deal is. And like, it seems like it's hard to read because I don't understand half the words. Um, you know, and and what it'll be replaced by is more more flexible storytelling. I think HBO and Netflix are starting to do that, where they'll say, "Look, how long should this story be told for? Um, if it should be two hours, we'll create four episodes and it'll be 30 minutes each." But it turns out most stories really shouldn't be told in only two hours. And the whole reason we did two hours is because like we had movie theaters and like that people had about that much time to think and like they needed to sell tickets. And so you'll end up seeing these more flexible times in which stories are being told. And I also think that you'll see episodes being like not all the same length. So right now, if you watch a show, usually the episodes are all either 40 minutes or 28 minutes or 50 something minutes. And I think over time, what you'll end up seeing is some episodes, like you'll be watching one TV show. It'll happen to be 11 episodes and, and it'll be 11 hours because they'll decide that that's how long it takes to tell the story. But it's not like it's going to be 11 episodes that are all an hour each. Not every subplot needs to be an hour. So like the first episode will probably be like an hour and 20 minutes because the beginning is hard to tell. And the next episode will be like 30 minutes. The next episode will be like 40 and then 20 and then an hour and 30. And then, you know, and so I think you'll just start to see a lot of these structures of storytelling break down. So if I own I guess, a few movie theaters, should I be scared? Are they going to go out of business? Well, Sean, when was the last time you went to a movie? I actually went to one two weeks ago. It was the first time in two years. And... 30 minutes in, I could barely sit still. Yeah, I, mean, I just think it's a shitty experience. Like, yeah. I don't know. Um, the uh, It's like a, a really useless piece of real estate. Like, they're usually in nice buildings. I'm sure I could build an arcade and make more money. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the uh, See, so I'm, not, I'm like not totally bullish on movie theaters. Although, by the way, eventually movie theaters will become so less valuable that eventually everyone will decide that they hate movie theaters, and then it'll probably be a good time to buy them because they'll just be priced in. Um, and maybe you buy it to like burn the thing down and build something new. I don't know, but there will be some price to buy movie theaters at. See, you know, the, the other thing I talk a lot about is I think it's really, really important to pay for content. And I think that anyone who doesn't pay for content is like a total like douchebag and a loser. And the reason is if you're not paying for your content, you're not reading content that's meant for you. And so like if you, you know, if you're reading, if you're reading something that's free, it means you're getting served ads. And if you're getting served ads, it means the CEO of that media company that's serving you that free thing has basically said, what can we write that'll accumulate a certain demographic that our advertisers, our customers are looking for? And they will do whatever they can to produce a piece of content that will curate that audience, regardless of whether or not it's valuable content, so that they can curate that audience and then sell it to the advertiser. Um, So I, I think that people just don't realize that every time they're reading free content, they're just like these marketing goons, you know, who are publishing this stuff for them that they're like looking at and being like, wow, okay. Um, I don't really know why I'm reading this. By the way, like, why is this out on the side? Yeah, what media uh, are you paying for? Um, I think the Financial Times is pretty good. I think the Atlantic is pretty good. I think the Economist is pretty good. I like the New Yorker a lot. So the New Yorker has a model where they basically treat stories like their books. So they prepay the author to write the story. Um, that way, the author, instead of like constantly rushing through the stories to the then get paid, Instead, it feels like it was published where they got paid in advance. They're giving the funding, funding they need to go write a long, in-depth story. Um, so I think anything with that model is pretty high quality. 
How are you measuring your own success right now? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the amount of compliments my girlfriend gives me. <laughs> um, the, I think the way we measure our success right now, the number one metric is how much money we're making for our investors. Um, so it's not how much money we're making. You know, a fund, the way it's structured is you have a GP and LP. Your investors give capital to the LP, which is basically a pool of funds. The GP is the entity that I work for and gets paid for managing those funds. We are less focused on how much the GP is making, and we're more focused on how much money our investors are making, because we assume that if we make a lot of money for our investors, we will build credibility with them such that they will want to give us more money, and it'll give us the opportunity to go find new investments and get paid for doing so. So are you satisfied where you're at right now? Um, uh, no, of course not. Like, I, I think, I think sat- satisfaction is like this really, really like horrible like thing. Like, I don't know what I'd do if I was satisfied, like golf. I don't know. Um, I, I, my, my biggest fear is like being satisfied. I got you. So that, do you have, do you have an end game at all? Or do you just always see life as a constant evolution? Um, I, I, you know, I, at a really, really high level, I hope CoVenture becomes one of the most important businesses in the world. However you want to describe that. The way I would describe it is we operate at incredible scale. So I think that like any, any opportunity you have to operate at scale is a really great one. So, you know, what I mean by that is when you do a podcast, you have multiple people listen to it. So you and I are spending an hour, but that hour is actually an hour that's creating like, you know, however many people listen to that podcast times one hour. So like some greater number, number greater than one, hopefully, um, you know, and then like, if you write a line of code, uh, then many people can use the functionality that you just put in that line of code. And so you just spent, you know, it's, it's one line of code. So one finite amount of your time with some, you know, at scale amount of uses of that line of code. Um, if you capitalize a business, you're giving, let's say a million bucks to a company. They then use that to hire people and then generate revenue and then build a big business theoretically. Um, so all those things are acting at scale. So if we can create a business that acts at great scale, um, however you want to describe it, you know, I don't really have like some finite, like, okay, now we've done this, so we're done. Um, but just like always on the pursuit of, of behaving or sort of, um, inputs that have great scale. I mean, I'm putting myself in one of the listener's shoes right now and thinking, man, Ali's kind of crushed it so far in his career. You have any low moments that, I mean, that really helped you grow? Dude, I live in like, I, I, I don't know, like, crush it's a great example, right? So we've been running a firm for three years and we have, we've gotten great returns, but I think it takes 10 years to know if you're a good investor or not. So, you know, I, I think, uh, don't, like I, I used to like, when I was like, you know, just starting my first startup, I'd read these stories, but Oh wow, this person raised $10 million. They've crushed it. I should have reworded that your track record to date has been pretty good. Yeah. So far so good. Um, yeah, of course there's low moments. Uh, there's times that we've had months where we didn't return as much as we thought we were going to. There's times that we've hired people that didn't work out. And there's times that we thought we were going to invest in a company. And then it turns out the company didn't really want us to invest. Um, so there's a, and by the way, you know, one of the great low moments. So when you're raising capital to invest, so let's imagine you're raising venture capital because you have this startup idea and you want to like go start the company. And you, you, you go to an investor and the investor says, you know what? I like you, but I don't like the idea. So I'm not going to invest. When you're raising capital for a fund to invest, when someone says no, they're not saying no to the idea. They're literally like, I now have met you. I've done diligence on you. And based on what I think about you, I'm not going to give you money. It's like a much pers- very, very personal rejection. So I guess every time I go out and try to raise capital and someone doesn't give it to me, I know it's because they don't like me. So, you know, that's like a, uh, an example. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Ali, this has been absolutely amazing. I have a question, though. If I'm throwing a party and you have to show up as the person you're going to be in five years, who are you showing up as? Dumbledore, um, <laughs> Dumbledore, Professor Lupin, uh, Charlie from Perks of Being a Wallflower. I think my favorite characters, Howard Rourke from Fountainhead. Um, I don't know, Harvey from Suits. That'd be pretty dope. Uh, Bobby Axelrod has his pluses and minuses. Um, I don't know. Probably not a real character. It'd probably be a fictional character though. Cool, man. Well, Ali, man, this has been awesome. Really insightful. I appreciate how articulate you are and and how you think through these different problems. I know the listeners are going to get a lot lot out of this. So if you'd have them stay connected with you, where should we direct them? Uh, So I'm on Twitter, at Ali B. Hamed, um, or Medium, or, yeah, I guess don't Facebook message me. I kind of could use Facebook for my friends. Um, But yeah, Twitter and Medium and maybe LinkedIn, I guess, are all good ways. Can you start writing a little bit more on Medium? I will. I do podcasts only now, man. 
I'm out. No more writing. I figure out how. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, thanks again for the time today. Thank you. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new brain stick pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you too as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. D-S-T-L-D, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Thanks got for you, listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.